listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pilar Orti. Hi, Pilar. How are you? Hi, Richard. I am very well. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. I've just chugged a pint of Pepsi Max. So, you know, that might give me an extra boost (laughs) as we're recording in the evening. (laughs) It's good you said Pepsi Max. (laughs) I was a bit worried. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I'm having the other pint while we're talking, obviously. (laughs) Excellent. Now, you have such a packed uh, uh, episode today. Listeners, if you could see our Trello board and Richard's got all this stuff, I am really curious to hear uh, why you have chosen all these our articles. Pre- our preparation, yeah. Well, we, we, we look at news. Uh, most episodes, we've got some news to share or, or things we've encountered online, some articles. And, and actually, you know, at Work Life Psych, which is my day job, we we operate in three principal areas. We help people be more productive. We help them with their well-being at work, and we help them be more effective and have more impact in the workplace. And actually, whether it's my, you know, brand floating around in my head or a function of what I read, I keep coming across news that fits in these categories. So I thought, why not? Why not present it in that way? And then people will know what to expect when they're listening to the news. So shall we Shall we make a start yes. on the news we want to cover before we dive into our, our main topic for the day? What is the main topic for so, the day? Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> the main topic, no, no, this is absolutely fine. The main topic uh, is we're going to look at another one of the principles of productivity that we've been um, discussing in previous episodes. And this one um, is another P because they all start with the, word, the letter P. This is presence. Wow. So after we've covered a bit of news, we'll talk about the value of presence. So in news, a couple of productivity-related things I came across. There's a really nice article over on the Evernote blog. Evernote is an app on multiple platforms that's all about saving information, whether you're typing it in or dictating a note or taking photographs of things. And the Evernote mission is, you know, basically to be your outboard brain, collect all the information and make it easy to find. And there's a a, a post on their blog making the case for digital notes. Now, Pilar, you and I have both recently really jumped in on the digital notes bandwagon in in, in a big way, I think, <laughs> um, to avoid having you know loads and loads of paper. But this this article is is quite nice. It makes the case for managing your information digitally. So I thought we'd share that and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, it's interesting. And and as always, since since I've started podcasting with you, I'm even more aware of where this is published. (laughs) Mm. Um, I I don't know. I'm... uh... I think yes, I, I think it's really good and I like the fact that it's saying, look, there's all these things and it, it's got I like the common pitfalls of the article, mm-hmm. really like how what to uh, not to do basically or, or what to uh, look out for. Um 
And uh, I, I, ha- I still have lots of places where I make notes. I almost see my phone as an app in that way. Mm. So instead of having like something like Evernote and have different notebooks in there, I'll have just some notes going in Trello and actually most notes go <laughs> into Trello. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting how, yes, yeah. It's it's something that I come across when when coaching an individual around being organized and, and productive. This topic comes up a lot, but many people are very good at collecting information. But what they do is they put it in lots of different places mm. and then they find it difficult to find it again. Yeah. And you know, they know it's in there somewhere, but which app or which notebook or even which device, you know, did did I take a photo? Where did I put it? So there is a case for digital. Uh, notes, digital information, but I think it needs to come with this skill of being able to organize that information yeah. so that you can retrieve it later. Yeah. yeah, no, and I like, I like read the article, listeners, it's really, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I think it applies regardless of the app. So yes. it is on the Evernote blog, but you know, it, it's just uh, the principle yeah. uh, more than anything else. The, the second thing I wanted to share was something that I got excited about, and I don't know if it will excite anyone else out there, but you've probably heard me previously mention the app Todoist. Um, it's a task management app. I love it. I've been using it for years. Now you can use your, and I quickly have to reach across to turn her off. <laughs> uh, you can use your Alexa to add tasks to Todoist. There's a link in place now. So you can say, um, I've said her name several times. Sorry, listeners, if I've activated your Amazon Echo. You can say, lady in a box, please. And then the the task that you list will appear in your Todoist inbox. And I found that really useful for those sort of, I'm in my office and I think of something and then rather than sit down and open up at the computer, I can just say it out loud to the uh, the the Amazon Echo that's on my desk. So you may like this, you may think I'm completely mad for getting so excited about it, but I really do like when systems I use begin to integrate and support each other. So there's a link to a, a YouTube video which sets out how to set that up if you have both an Alexa and you are a Todoist user. So I have mixed uh, feelings about this. Um, I thought you might. <laughs> as, as someone who realized that uh, if I had my uh, Siri, sorry, open, uh, it meant that my, basically that I could be broadcasting to something all the time. Uh, but that's a different, um, I think that's a different way of, of using your phone. I think you can control all of that. But um, there's a couple of things. One is, I don't know, it's a bit old fashioned. Um, it's really, it was really interesting, actually. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the change of interaction with our devices. Um, mm. and how, how might language and the way in which we communicate things, how, how it might change if we are sometimes consciously talking to an app to do something. So, for example, when I dictate, I slow down and I put my speech, my full stop and all of that. And I just wonder, and this is, again, it's neither good nor bad, but I wonder whether language and the way in which we uh, give instructions might change. Mm, it, it could well it's do. I mean, I found myself this morning when writing, I was I was using Google as a verb. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and lots of people do that now, but strictly speaking, that's probably a more exact way of describing what I was I was trying to write. And similarly, yes, if you want to be understood by a, you know, not particularly smart device, um, then you do need to adopt a certain way of speaking to it. Otherwise, it just won't get it. And, and that's why some people are frustrated by devices like these, because they're not understood as much as they would like. And so we do need to adapt to them. I think they're getting better. 
Um, but they are, are far from perfect. You know you're not speaking with a human, but definitely. That's also interesting, though. The skill of adapting how you speak is also actually quite interesting to just adapt so that the machine um, understands you. It also brings an awareness of the fact that we need to be doing that anyway uh, throughout the day. Mm -hmm. um, so, And one last thing. So I mentioned this to my friend Maya, and she said that <laughs> she um, she tried this with the assistant in, in her uh, iPhone, and she said that... Um, Create reminder in Todoist just came, uh, always was referred to as, what time do you want to be reminded to go to the tattooist? <laughs> yes, I, I, I know exactly what she means because I have tried that with Madam S. Right. Um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a lady S on my iPhone and it doesn't work at all. It doesn't understand the word Todoist uh -huh. and it just sets up reminders in the Apple reminders right. uh, app so it, the integration is supposed to be there it just doesn't work for me and i gave up so when this mm. when i came across this uh i was a bit suspicious but it worked brilliantly for me so it's it's those sort of you know as i think of something nothing important like remind me to buy this or you know add that to the letter that nothing too complex but it's a it's a time-saving thing would now here's a question though would i use it if i wasn't the only person in the office because i'm often alone in that office ah. And would I feel self-conscious? I probably would, actually. You know, I, I, I don't do it in public. I don't speak to my phone in public. I still feel self-conscious about that. But I, I know that I'm possibly in a minority because lots of people speak to their phones yes. on the streets. So, hmm, but it can be done. It doesn't mean you have to. Yeah. It's there, and I'm sharing the update. Excellent. On much more serious note, uh, there was an article in The Guardian that, that you shared with me um, about the Wellcome Trust and a four-day week. And the four-day week is something that we've talked about before, mm -hmm. um, the flexibility and the benefits that that brings. So um, the, the article says the Wellcome Trust is considering moving all of its 800 head office staff to a four-day week in a bid to boost productivity and improve work-life balance. That's quite a big organization, quite a, a large number of people. When we talked about it before, we, we focused on that case study of the insurance firm mm -hmm. in New Zealand. This is a much bigger organization, much closer to home. What do you think? Well, it's very high profiled also. Um, so it's very well known and what it does. Um, the kind of work is very high profiled also. I really, really liked this article um, because... It's an article where you hear welcome saying, look, we're going to try, we're going to look into this. We're going to look into this, see what we think are the, the pitfalls, see how it can help us, and then we'll assess. And I really like that from their approach. There is also the point in here, though, that it's about giving Fridays off. Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> that's really interesting. <laughs> yes, yes oh, because it's um, a, that's quite prescriptive. Yeah, potential risks. Um, it has identified includes a loss of flexibility if people are required to work only Monday to Thursday. Yeah, that's a bit strange. Um, and, and, and I also like mm. this because that's the thing. I mean, and, we, and you've got another piece which shows us a lot more, this perception. And one of the things they're worried about is uh, this is, um, there's the risk of a public-facing organization which handles one billion pounds a year in science funding being perceived to make the move as a luxury rather than to increase mm. productivity and well-being. So, yeah, you're right. There is the hang on. What are we saying uh, <laughs> with the yeah, decreased hours, but we're being rigid. And also, I love the perception angle on it. 
Yeah, it's important that they're able to demonstrate that this doesn't negatively impact their key organizational metrics, mm. whatever they are, and and maybe the more subjective metrics as well, what the public think of this and what their key stakeholders think of this. But I would also really um, be interested to see what employees think about it only being Fridays. The, yeah. the, I know there will be people on their organization that would like to spread the reduced hours over five days. Yeah. Um, and maybe those that would prefer not to work on a Monday. I mean, we hear all about how tough Mondays are. I'm sure some people would prefer to take the odd Monday off. And is it fixed and for how long? So it's really welcome news. I've just got a lot of questions. And so I'll be keeping an eye on this as it develops. And I'm sure we'll come back to it as there are um, uh, you know, more information comes out um, if, if they publicize it. Because I've said it before, cynical me, <laughs> um, case studies are by their very nature positive. Yeah. Uh, people tend not to write case studies about when there's been an absolute car crash of a change. So um, we might we might need to come back to this proactively if they're not actively sharing uh, the results in the coming months. But lovely to see a high-profile organization do well, it. Well, they might not even take it up, though, if I understand where they were at when they wrote the article. No, they're considering it. I know, considering, mm. I know, maybe I've got more excited than I should well, we'll be. Well, we'll see. We'll see where they, if, if anyone's <laughs> listening and has any contacts with the Wellcome Trust, please <laughs> let us know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be really yeah. good to understand the decision-making process. How do you arrive at whether you're going to do this or not? And how do you arrive at a decision as to whether a pilot has been a success? Um, because there's there's more at play here, isn't there, than simply the hours worked and the outputs. Oh, yeah. It is a high-profile organization. We've also got a, an, another uh, nice article you shared with me. Uh, thank you for this about flexible working and the reinforcing of gender stereotypes. And it's uh, some research reporting that, um, as we might expect, for those of us who look at this, um, there are gender differences in how people respond to the offer of flexibility and what that flexibility looks like for them. And a big part of that is the home life and responsibilities outside of work. Pilar, what do you think of this story? Well, flexible working can reinforce gender stereotypes. <laughs> this is one thing that I hadn't thought of. Um, I hadn't thought of this. I hadn't thought of this effect. I have been very aware that a lot of the time when we talk about flexible work, uh, a lot of people are still thinking, oh, mums. Uh, because that's 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 a, an area where there's been a lot of work in there and lots of advocacy. Um, but I I thought, well, maybe it will help to balance some of that and actually to to see that uh, that's not the case, uh, and that still the how different genders are perceiving the the flexible the arrangements and also how they're being perceived as they take it or yeah. not. Well, it's where we are. <laughs> it's almost like there's male flexible working and female yeah. flexible working. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's not great for anyone, for society, for organizations, for individuals. I'm just going to quote briefly yeah. from the article, and we'll link to it. Um, but there are downsides to flexible working. Research shows that it can lead to people working more overtime. Plus, the capacity for workers to extend their working day is not equal between genders. Men, on average, are more likely than women to work longer hours when given more control over them, even if it's unpaid overtime according to this research. Another study has shown that men are also more likely to worry about work when not at work and working flexibly, since men are less likely to worry about the competing care demands they face in the house. So here we are back to who's doing what in the home, and um, that's really impacting the decision-making 
about what hours to work where there is flexibility. So it's not just about having a policy in place. It's not just about letting people know how they can do it. It's also thinking much bigger than that and challenging some of those assumptions and some of those gender-based stereotypes. And I really like a term that um, that they have in the article. I hadn't really heard of it, but I think I'm going to be using it a lot, which is flexibility stigma. The, mm, uh, mm. the idea that people uh, uh, using flexible working are less committed and less productive, I found it very interesting. And what is interesting is that, you know, the research does shows that, 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 that people who work flexibly often do work longer hours. Now, that doesn't automatically translate into productivity, but, you know, it's not about commitment. Yeah. It's about flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, the same for people who work from home. But we're, we're trading over your, your expertise and, and the, the ground that we've, we've spoken about before. There are a lot of stereotypes yeah. when it comes to maybe what we'll call non-traditional working arrangements, not, you know, the non nine to five, people can be often suspicious of that, mm. um, which is a shame because there are so many benefits that come with it. Um, and I think I briefly mentioned to you before we started recording, I, I came across a, an analysis of data when I was doing my doctorate, which was all about work-life balance that looked at a sort of pan-European review of gender differences when it came to flexible working and when it came to division of labor in the home. And there are enormous differences as to how couples divide the household responsibilities. And um, there's that north-south divide. Northern yeah. Europe um, tends to be more egalitarian about that. Southern Europe tends to be less. Now we're talking averages you know, of, of millions of data points. But the trend is there that it's, it seems to be easier for women in Northern Europe to do this because they're not coming home to 100% ownership of all of the tasks in the home. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, it, it, we forget sometimes because here in the, in the article, I find it very interesting. It says, uh, we need to challenge organizational cultures that privilege work above everything else, etc. cetera. Uh, and then we also need to challenge some of our gendered assumptions of men and women's roles at home. It just shows that this is really, it is about the culture in the organization. It is about seeing as we are, um, affecting the time that people st uh, spend at home with the flexible schedules, we also need to look at that and what's happening there. So really fascinating. And absolutely. And take account of national culture yes. because that's a, a massive ingredient yeah. here. So yeah, it, it's not, it's not going to be sorted over a weekend of, <laughs> of, uh, of thinking or a new policy, but uh, I think if we're aware of it, then we can start to do something about it. Um, the next piece of news uh, I wanted to share, um, I've been working um, on, a, on a project with a client at the moment to take uh, employees through some workshops to help them navigate the challenges that come with organizational change. So one of my client organizations is reorganizing and, and um, you know, doing some change. And they're, they're keen that people feel supported and have an opportunity to develop some skills to navigate that appropriately. And So when looking around at the evidence base, I came across a nice article from our friends at Science for Work. It's, um, it's only about four days old, and it's all about the role of trust in leadership when uh, organizations are conducting change initiatives. And, and unsurprisingly, th th this is probably one of those, so what, when people say, 
Scientists have found that trust is important, but <laughs> it really is. This is this is driven by by data, and the trust in the leadership uh, seems to be a, a you know a key predictor of how people um, respond to changes. And you know when there's trust in leadership, um, it, it, the leader levels. It, this article points out that it's linked to fair processes, fair treatment, perceptions of fair resource allocation. So. Um, and I quote here, employees who trust their immediate boss have higher job satisfaction, more commitment to the company, and feel they are treated more fairly in processes and decision-making. Employees who trust their business leaders feel more committed to the company, feel the organization supports them more, and feel that leaders fairly allocate resources, treat others well, and follow procedures transparently. That's quite a few things yeah. associated with trust in leaders. So Again, it, it's one of those recipes or ingredient in the recipe for change to, to, to factor in how do people view the leadership of the organization? It plays a big part in how they're going to view how fair and equitable the change and the results of the change are. And what I like about this article is that the like like most of their, if not all of their articles, they have they look at the data, they they, they tell you the theory, uh, the research, and then they have takeaways for your practice. What I like here mm. is that they've got a set of takeaways for the direct supervisor and then a set of takeaways for the C-suite leader. Because sometimes when mm. we're talking about leadership in organizations, everything's mixed. And actually how we then work uh, is affected by what level, at what level we're operating. So I think I really like that. It's nice. And they talk, they talk very transparently about how, um, how much trust we can place in this data. <laughs> so every article has a trustworthiness score. They're very clear that the study design was a meta-analysis of cross-sectional studies. So there's some weaknesses in that, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it, it, you can't really demonstrate strong causal relationships there. But they're saying it is likely mm -hmm. that trust in leadership impacts employee behavior and attitudes. We, we would know that. But it really, really underlines the role of, of trust. Mm -hmm. Really important stuff. Another couple of key points before we dive into to the meat of this. Um, we, we had our first personal development at work meetup oh, in yes. London. I mentioned that last time we, we, we spoke. So um, we focused on goal setting because it was the start of the year. It's a time when people maybe want to make some changes and think about New Year's resolutions. So our our narrative was very much, well, maybe you've tried it. Maybe it's not working for you. Let's see how effective goal setting could work, um, could really help you uh, achieve the change that you want to. So we talked a little bit about the science. We had debates about what works, what doesn't work, and took people through a few exercises to help them clarify some of this stuff. So we're going to have our second one on February 28th, again in London. Um, I'll share a link to the background info and the sign-up um, form online. It's, but the interesting thing is that it's going to be all about procrastination. <laughs> so what is it that stops you from taking action that could be helpful uh, to you? And we know from this podcast, it's still the number one downloaded episode of all time, our episode all about procrastination. People are interested in it. Everyone experiences it. What can we do to lessen its impact on our, on our own development. So that's February 28th in London, and I'll share the, the sign-up link. And it's free. I want to underline that just in mm -hmm. case people are, are interested. It's a completely free event. I'm co-facilitating that with Paul Smith, who is from Wise Amigo, who um, also appeared on this podcast uh, last year. And um, I, 
It's a long way away, <laughs> uh, but I got a reminder this morning um, from the organizers that I'm speaking at the CIPD Festival of Work, which is taking place on the 12th and 13th of June. So they're asking everyone who's speaking at it to be open about that and promote the event. It's a sort of a two-day people at work jamboree. Um, there's some really good headline speakers, some really good events across the couple of days. I'll share a link. The brochure is available now so you can see everyone who's speaking at it and what they're talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the future of work. I'm, I'm emphasizing the need to retain our focus on uh, people skills, interpersonal skills, regardless of advances in technology and changes to what's going on around us. We still need to ensure that people have effective interpersonal skills. So that's what I'm going to be talking about in June. And I think there's something uh, also around flexibility, um, sorry, flexible working and new work practices as well. So really quite, yeah, it should be of interest to listeners of the show. Across the two days, I'm, I'm confident yeah. there's something that will, will interest people. So uh, link to that in the show notes. So shall we move on to our meet of this episode. Let's do it. <laughs> so we're back to look at the theme of productivity, which is what we're um, reviewing in some, in some detail uh, in 2019. And we've talked about these principles of productivity. Um, I'm really keen that people understand these are principles and not rules or strict methods, because as we've discussed before, there's such a variety of people and jobs and organizations out there, it, it's kind of pointless and redundant to say, here is the method. There is no such thing. So what I've been trying to do over the last while is identify some working principles that people can read about, think about, and implement in their own context, given their job and the organization in which they work. So we've talked about the importance of having purpose and meaning We've talked about the importance of being clear on your priorities and what you do with your limited time, your attention and your energy, and you have clarity on, on what's important in a, in a working day, week, month, quarter. And so the third of these principles that we're going to talk about is another P, it's presence. Um, this is the need, the importance of being present in the here and now. So it's, all, it's okay to know what your priorities are, but if you sit down at your desk or if you go to your workstation or if you go to see your clients and you're not really focused on the here and now, you're not going to be getting the results that you would hope for, regardless of meaning, regardless of prioritization, regardless of your skills maybe. If you're not in the here and now, if your focus is elsewhere, it's going to impact your effectiveness is going to impact, Im, impact your, your productivity. And it's not a word that you often hear when we're talking about productivity, because I always think uh, productivity and when we're sitting down to think about that, to plan, to put our systems down, whatever they may be, there's always that looking ahead and into the future. How can I make myself more, which involves thinking of you uh, in the future. And so actually to really say, no, it's key that we know where we are and that we are aware in that moment and fully present. I think it's, yeah, really key. It's it's really all about what we do with our attention. And and you're right, you know, a lot of productivity uh, writing and thought out there is, is kind of mechanistic mm. um, instructions and focuses on methods. And, you know, that, that can be really useful. And in fact, we're going to talk about that in a, in a future episode that, you know, they need to be 
systematic, appropriately systematic, given your job. But if you're not really taking the attention that you have and putting it in the right place at the right time, then all of that's kind of wasted. And what would it look like? Well, if you're multitasking and you're splitting your attention between too many things, if you're drifting towards the, the, the future, worrying about tomorrow or getting caught up with memories from the past, um, if you are in a an environment that's not conducive to being focused. And a lot of people um, that I work with one-on-one will talk about the disruptive nature of an open plan office. They find that they have to go and book a meeting room to themselves or, in fact, wait till the evening to do some of their very detailed or um, concentration-requiring work because the open plan office is noisy, there's lots of movement in their visual field, and, of course, they're getting interrupted by the people around them who have those have-you-got-a-minute mm-hmm. questions that never last a minute. So the, the key skill uh, to be developed is to notice where your attention is going and to be able to bring that attention back where it's most needed. So hopefully, if you've listened to this podcast in the past, you'll recognize that we're, we're talking about this mindful approach to work, this attention management piece, which is, you know, one of the elements of psychological flexibility, showing up in the here and now. Because here and now is the only place you can be. And if you've decided what's important to you and what you're going to work on, that's where your attention needs to be. It is easy to have it dragged off in all kinds of directions, as we know. And uh, if anyone out there has, you know, started to practice mindfulness meditation at any point in their life, one of the first things you notice is just how busy our minds can be and how it's kind of like herding cats to bring your attention to one place. Because as soon as we notice it, our minds go off in all kinds of directions. And um But when you notice that it's useful to notice where your attention is, you can begin to to build that focus and make sure that you're doing one thing at a time, doing it as well as you can, and then moving on to the next thing. I find that so difficult. And I'm really, really training myself. And it's not even about the environment. For me, it's about the nature of the work. So I'm doing one Mm. thing, and as I'm doing that thing, it triggers off a thought about another thing, and I'm really training myself to go, no, you're now doing this first thing. Um, And of course, there are ways of, uh, I can make a note of what needs to be done or whatever. There are strategies to cope around that, but I find that very, very difficult. It, It is because we've had a long time of not thinking about it in, you know, at work and potentially being actively encouraged to multitask. Um, whether that's um, explicitly or implicitly, because technology allows us to, or people expect us to, you know, while while we're doing one thing, people are asking us questions about something else, um, and our attention is getting split all over the place. And and as I've said a few times, you know, we we can't really effectively multitask. We're, We're just, each of the tasks we're doing is suffering from this attempt at multitasking, we're switching our attention very quickly between these things. And if they're important or meaningful tasks, then they're going to suffer. And that's not very productive. If they're not meaningful tasks, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's actually, you, you bring me back to a point we made at the very outset of the podcast, that one of the reasons that I find it useful to dictate tasks via the lady in a can, into my to-do list is that when I'm writing, I try and have one app open on the screen and that's it. So I just have that focus in front of me. And if I think of something, then I would have to open up another app, 
see other things that might remind me of something else. And there, then my focus is gone. And I'm like you in a spiral of, oh, and that other thing, that other thing. So if I can just pause and say something, then that's off my mind and I can continue to concentrate on the one thing. Because the challenge with having a big screen and a powerful computer and lots of apps is that, well, you've got a big screen that can be filled with lots of apps that can pull your attention lots of different places. And I know the experience for a lot of people in the workplace is that they might try and focus on something and the thing that pulls their attention away is notifications of new emails or new instant messages. So one of the simple things that we can do is minimize those kinds of distractions, those kinds of notifications, if we really want to focus on one thing. And that focus could be really giving your attention to the conversation you're having with a colleague, really giving your attention to the phone call that you're on. I don't know if you've seen this, Pilar, but I, I, I'm always amazed at how people are on a, a phone call while trying to do something else in the office. You know, they're trying to get someone's attention. They're trying to write a note. They're trying to maybe type something while they're on a phone call. Now, both of those are complex actions yeah. and both of them are going to suffer. And we can tell when someone's not paying attention to yeah. us. Um, but it's, you know, at a very basic level, it's inefficient. It's going to take you longer to do these things. I want to go back just to, to the, the point where you were saying about uh, you're doing something on the screen and then you dictate. Um, so you don't. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting strategy that if we are. So imagine you're typing, you're using the screen, you're mainly typing or reading in the screen, and then you go and make a note in that same space. It's really, um, it's, it's not enough of a switch in a way to then be able to come back to that. So what I mean is. It, it, Dictating, saying, so stopping saying something and then coming back to writing is different to writing, writing this other thing and then coming back to writing. And I quite like that split. Or even if it is you're writing something, you have an idea and you handwrite it so that you're actually, mm -hmm. you're triggering yourself to going, no, I was doing that in that way, but now I'm back to doing this in this way. Quite like that. Well, we, we do know that by, by writing a to-do, we're taking some of the pressure and worry away from that activity mm. by making it concrete. What I don't know is if we dictate that, if it has the same psychological impact. Well, I just know from my experience that I just don't want to open up any other yeah, apps because I know I'll get dragged away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see something that interests me or worries me or, you know, so I just I just want to do that and, and um, keep things as simple as possible. But I can imagine if I was standing behind the counter serving people uh, in a hotel or in a shop and I'm focused on customer service and I think of something else that needs doing, that could be more of a challenge. Oh, yes. I can't stop speaking to this client and dictate something to my phone. So there is something about finding something that is suitable for the role that you have and the context in which you're in. If I was in an open plan office and I kept shouting at Alexa, I'd probably have my colleagues over asking me to, to stop doing that. So this is what I mean about principles. Yeah. You know, when we talk about productivity, I'm not saying everyone go and buy Alexa and start using Todoist, it's about minimizing as you can in your role, in your context, those interruptions and those distractions. But also, going back to psychological flexibility, minimizing the distractions that come from within. You know, the upset we can feel with our own thoughts and emotions. You know, one of those things is, is when we, you know, focus on something unhelpful in our own thinking and we play it over in our mind again and again. And we're sitting at a desk or we're standing at a counter or we're wherever we are, but we're not psychologically there. 
We're not present. And that comes back to this whole principle. If you're there, you're there and you're doing the thing at hand. You're doing the meaningful work and then you move on to the next thing. Does that make sense as a as a principle? Well, totally. I think it, it it's it's key, and uh, in a way, a lot of what we're trying to do. If we don't get this one right, everything else just falls apart. Um, and I think also for me, it's one of the most difficult ones, um, especially the distractions. They come; they're all internal and all in the work. Um, and but and the point you make yeah. about context, it's so important. It really is. So I'd love to hear as we go through this. I'd love to hear from listeners who are maybe thinking about these principles and how they might be able to adopt them, interpret them for their own context and what that looks like for them. Because I'm I'm really aware that me sitting in my own private office, I can do things that other people can't. And, and I know that other people could benefit from things that I can. So, we, you know, we just need to think about what works for you. Um, now, if you do want to, you know, if you're if you agree that being present and being mindful is useful when it comes to getting you know, the right things done, then the question is, how do I develop this? Because we've underlined how challenging it can be. We, we covered this to some extent in a previous episode of the podcast. And also, I've written about it in our guide to psychological flexibility. It can start as simply as developing the habit of these mindful moments throughout the day, practicing focusing on one thing. It could be your breathing. It could be focusing on something that you can see. It could be going for a mindful walk. But these are the actions that remind us what it's like to focus. And it also gives us the insight to notice when our mind is wandering, when our thoughts have gone elsewhere. The, the trick here is to be gentle with yourself and to forgive yourself when your mind does wander. The win is in noticing it and bringing it back to the task. One of the things when you focus on your focus, when you start to notice how you're using your attention, you learn more about yourself and your working style and you realize the limits of your attention. And that's really useful when it comes to prioritization because then you can learn, you know what, I can't focus for more than 30 minutes on one task. That's how I'm going to organize my tasks. And someone else might say, an hour is the upper maximum I can give to something before I notice my mind is wandering. So that's important for me to know. Or it's easier for me to focus and give all my attention to something in the morning. You know, So it's this self-reflective, self-discovery piece. But the only way you find that out is by paying attention to where your attention is going. I would love to hear what listeners think. Richard, and especially what being present, especially at work, means for them. And again, thinking about the wide variety of work roles and jobs that there are out there and how how people help to remain to remain present and also what they do, how they cope with this with distractions if they decide that they want to cope with them. So worklifepsych.com, I would love to hear from listeners. Uh, that's the long form and at my pocket psych on Twitter. I just thought I'd put that call out there now, Richard. <laughs> no, great. And I would love to hear about what really distracts yes. people. I'd love to know more about because, you know, we know noise can be distracting and blinking lights can be distracting and other people can be distracting. But what is it? Maybe outside of the office environment, you know, um, if you're not working in a traditional office environment, we'd love to hear from you in terms of both this principle of presence, what productivity looks like for you and what are the things that draw your attention away from where you would ideally like it to go. We'll also link back to the podcast episode where we looked at this mindful approach concept and also link to the guide you can download 
on psychological flexibility, which goes into the practice of mindful moments in a lot more detail. That's, that's a good starting point if you notice that your attention tends to wander. So that is the principle number three, that of presence. We're going to continue looking at these alongside other interesting bits of news and guests and interviews. Um, but we hope you're enjoying this focus on productivity. As Pilar said, we'd love to get your feedback, your thoughts and ideas. But for now, Pilar, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. That's episode number 34 of My Pocket Psych. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.